Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter number 3. There's a sense in which we could say that man's greatest need, have you ever thought about man's greatest need? Well, we'd have a lot of different ways to, to answer that, but there's a sense in which you can say man's greatest need is to see his need. And, uh, you know, you, you've heard me say that you can't get a person saved until they realize they're lost. And as long as a person thinks that he's okay, then he doesn't have any hope of ever getting any better. And that's why the book of Romans is so very important, because Paul comes out with both barrels blazing. He didn't have any interest in trying to make people feel better about themselves or commending them for their interest in religion. Uh, he knew their greatest need was to see themselves as they really were, to see themselves as sinners. And he doesn't pull any punches when he's describing their sinfulness. He devotes the first three chapters of this remarkable letter to doing just that. And he really gets down to business when we get to chapter 3, and there's no mistaking what he says. He makes it clear that those self-righteous Jews in that day were no better than the godless Gentiles because all had sinned and come short of the glory of God. All needed Christ. Notice beginning in verse 10, he says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, and their tongue they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now, whenever you look at these verses that I just read, you see a picture of the sinner's curse, that is, his fallen condition. And notice in verse 11 and 12, he speaks about the sinner's mind. And then notice in the next two verses, he speaks about his mouth. And then he speaks about his manners in verse 15. And then he speaks about his misery. But notice in verse number 18, because this is what gets to the very root of the problem, where he says there is no fear of God before their eyes. All of the other things that he has just said can be attributed to that one sad fact that there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's strange how sometimes I remember certain sermons that I've preached over the years because sometimes I can't remember, you know, what I did yesterday. But as I was preparing this message, my mind went back to a certain sermon that probably 45 years ago. I preached the sermon at a youth rally out on a baseball field. And we had, you know, all of the young people from several churches all filled up in the stadium seats there. And, and I remember in the sermon, I started out by introducing it, by asking the question, 
What do we need most? What do we need most? And I talked about several, you know, possibilities, you know. Uh, you know, we, well, we need more knowledge. Certainly we need more, you know, to know more about the Lord. We, uh, the pastor might say we need more workers in the church or we need more money in the church or we, you know, and I went on and on and on. And then I pointed out that it was my belief that the one thing that was missing that we needed more than anything else is the fear of God. And that's what we're talking about this morning. You know, Christians are missing some of the most important things in life. And you, you, we've been talking about love, for example, on Sunday night, and it's very evident a lot of people are lacking in love. There are other people that are feeble in their faith. There are some that are hurting for hope. I mean, they're just living in a state of despair all of the time. But more than anything else, people are failing to have a real genuine fear of God. You know, we fear losing a lot of things. For example, that people fear losing their health. We all want to be healthy, right? And we fear losing our health. Somebody else might fear losing all of their money or losing their reputation or losing their popularity. But there seems to be almost no fear today about losing the fear of God. Who's afraid of that? I mean, there seems to be so very little concern. And in fact, I think some people in, you know, in their mind, they think that I fare better without it. But that is an illusion. They're thinking, you know, if I can not fear God, but just think of God as a big Santa Claus up there in the sky somewhere that's, you know, whose number one interest is in giving me all of the things that I want and making me happy. You know, if they can envision a God like that, and by the way, some people do. You know, they create a God out of their own imagination, but as I said, that's an illusion. The manner in which some people are living ought to scare them to death, and yet they're not troubled at all. They fail to see any danger in their disobedience. They don't see the seriousness of their sin. They're like those described in the Old Testament. They're not able to blush. You know, the things that years ago that uh, to even mention certain things would cause people to blush. And nowadays, people indulge in those sins and they, they can't even blush about it. In fact, they actually brag about it and often are praised by others as a result of it. The President of the United States gets on the phone and congratulates someone as being a great and a godly example for others because he came out. And I listen, I can go on 30 minutes talking about this. Of people that are being praised for sins that are vile, filthy abominations in the eyes of God. There is no fear of God in the eyes of people today. And we, there was a time back years ago we used to hear a lot about God-fearing people, right? Well, we don't hear much about that anymore. And when we do, it really doesn't mean anything. It's like the old boy said, oh, I'm just preaching. Doesn't mean anything. I'm just preaching, you know. It, uh, and that's the way sometimes we think about the fear of God. Things are certainly different since the days of Jonathan Edwards whenever whenever he started the Great Awakening here by preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
old Jonathan Edwards wasn't an eloquent speaker, an orator by any stretch of the imagination. He had poor eyesight. He read the manuscript from a candle there with his nose right down on it. There was no entertaining. There was no jokes. He just read the message of God's Word about sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that message sparked something in America that changed the direction of our entire nation. But it's not like that today. You see, this concept of an angry God has almost disappeared in our churches today. And I think part of the reason is because in our effort to please people, to make them happy, to attract them, to get them to join our church, we've, you know, we've turned somersaults, as it were, trying to entertain them and to do whatever we can in order to make them happy. We've allowed our theology to get out of balance. By that, I mean that we put emphasis on the fact that God is a God of love, and He certainly is, and He deserves to be praised for that. But Paul said in Romans chapter 11, he said, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. In other words, there's two sides to that coin. We need to think about God as a God of love, but we also need to think about the fact that God is holy, and because God is holy... He is also a God of wrath who is to be feared. Nearly 300 times in the Bible, it speaks about the fear of the Lord. So I can't preach the Bible without preaching about the fear of God. I said at the beginning, I'm not sure exactly where I'm headed with this. I know what subject I'm talking about, but there are so many things, so many factors, so many different things that could be said about it that it's hard to know what to weed out and what to to talk about. It's so easy to focus on the goodness of God. My, I mean, you know, our mind's just overwhelmed with all of the good things that God does. It's no wonder we sing, thank you, Lord, for saving our soul. And the Bible says the goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. I mean, we, listen, we can't do without that. It's important. But it's a whole different thing whenever we uh, think about focusing on the fear of God, and that's where we're at this morning. We could approach it in a lot of different ways. I could divide it up. I could talk about the definition and the, uh, of the fear of God, that it is not a servile type of fear as we normally think of it. For example, I could say that, you know, that I feared my daddy, but I wasn't afraid of him. Some preachers, on one hand, they say, well, when it talks about the fear of God, that's just having a reverence for God. It doesn't mean you're really to fear him, but they're wrong. Because it also means in addition to a reverence for him, it means a dread of disappointing him also. Because God's not playing games. We could speak about the definition and the demands that are involved and the dividends of it and, and on and on. So as I said, I don't really know where to start 
I think about, and I've done this, I've gone through the Bible and I've preached a message where I took all of the different verses that, that are mentioned in the Scripture about the fear of God and, and uh, constructed an outline to where it talks about the, you know, what happens as a result of it. Let me just read through some things just for a second and then I'll move on. The fear of God provides knowledge and wisdom. You find that at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. You think you're so smart, but if you don't have any fear of God, you don't know anything. We'd say in Missouri, you don't know nothing. And, and that's the way it is. The fear of God's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God prevents sin. It perfects holiness. It produces life. It prolongs life. It provides security. It prompts blessings. It pictures humility. It purifies our thoughts. It proclaims respect. It proves our love. It precedes worship. It promises peace. And, and I'm going to just stop there. I can just keep going. We could just talk for an hour on any one of those given points there. And I'm afraid if we get, you know, involved in all of that, you'll be so distracted that you will miss the main point that I want you to get this morning. And I, I don't want you to leave here this morning without, without being impressed as to the seriousness of this matter of fearing God and when it's lacking, when it's missing, uh, what great trouble that we're in. I want you to realize that everything rises or falls on our fear of God. And the problem isn't with us knowing that. You've read your Bible. You've attended Sunday school. You've heard preachers preach about the fear of God. The problem's not in knowing that. The problem is in doing that. And I think I'm safe to say that that the fear of God is clearly missing, not, not just out there in the world, not just whenever the President of the United States picks up the phone and congratulates somebody for coming out and, and uh, bragging about their sin. No, no, I, I'm talking about even in our churches today. There's so very little concern about this matter of fearing God. And I think about America, I've got to say, I, you know, absolutely there's no judgment that could come against us that would surprise me because we deserve it. Now, I love America as much as anybody here this morning. I love this nation. I thank God for our heritage. I, I love it with all of my heart. I try to respect it in every possible way, but I'm telling you, if we got what we deserved, we'd get wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow because we're a bunch of murderers murdering the little innocent unborn babies. And in addition to that, all of the other vile sins that we promote and brag about in our society today. It wouldn't surprise me. Not only because of what I see, but because of what I know based on the Bible, I I look back through the Bible and see all of these examples of people that feared in regards to fearing God. I think about Abraham whenever he lied. 
And if you go over there and read the story in, in Genesis chapter number 20, you'll see at the root of his problem was the fact that he didn't fear God. And in fact, he lied about Sarah, you know, and it created a world of problems. And, and his explanation was because, you know, I'm among you people, these ungodly people. He said, oh, I, I thought I was among people that had no fear of God. Do, do you get what he's saying? He's saying, in essence, you, you know, I, I, thought I, I thought I was like the rest of you. In other words, it's okay. My behavior is okay because of the society that I'm in. Oh, yeah, the, yeah I'm going to explain my sin away because saying, well, everybody's doing it. I, it's just that, you know, nobody else fears God. I thought it would be all right if I didn't. You'd have thought if anybody knew better that it would be Abraham, but he didn't. Then you go on and you think about Absalom, for example. Boy, you'd think if anybody learned their lesson about the failure to fear God, Absalom would have, right? Because after all, his daddy, David, committed a horrible, terrible sin that brought a curse upon that family forever. Not only did the child die as a result of it, but there was a curse upon the family. And instead of Absalom learning from that, what does he do? Out of a lack of fear for God, he rebelled against God's appointed king, his daddy. And then the judgment of God came upon him. You remember the story, right? He's out there mustering his army together and they're going to overthrow his daddy's kingdom. And as he's going under a tree, his long hair got caught in the bushes and like old brother Roloff used to say, and the mule walked on. Yeah. And he hung there until he died. Why? No fear of God. I think of Ananias and Sapphira, for example, to the New Testament. Boy, there was a great revival, you could say, going on in the church. I mean, my, everybody was excited and the Holy Spirit had empowered them, enabled them to speak in other languages not naturally acquired. There were souls being added to the church every day, 3,000 saved on one day on the day of Pentecost. And all of these people are excited and they're selling what they've got, bringing it to the church so they could distribute to meet the needs of, of God's people. Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they, they feel like, well, not, and I don't know exactly how they reason, but they thought, you know, we, we need to do our part, and we've got some property, whereas in, in, in Cyprus, I believe it was, anyway, they, they made a commitment. They said, we're going to sell our property, and we're going to give it all, and they sold the property, evidently got a good price, and they decided they were going to keep back a part of the price of the property for themselves. Now, God didn't tell them or command them to do that, but they promised they would. And then they kept back a part of the price, and God killed both of them. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Whenever we lose the fear of God, we are in dangerous territory. 
And if there was ever a time that we see that lack of fear, it's today. We see it, like I said, not just out in the world, but we see it in the churches. We see it among people that are professing Christians. And even though they're professing Christians, they they do exactly what the world does. They dress exactly what in modesty in our church. Let me change that. In modesty in this church today stinks. Some of you need to learn how to dress and put on some clothes and act decent. Some of you husbands need to grow a backbone and stand up and say, you're not wearing that to church. Thank you, back to whoever that was. I just mentioned that and I could mention 40, 11 other things. I'm telling you, there is something wrong with you folks if you cannot see the lack of fear of God today in our church. It's everywhere. Members complaining and belly aching and, and the immorality that, that, that goes on and there was a time where, where, I mean, absolutely we said, look, something's gotta be done and we exercise church discipline no more. Just get knocked up, have babies, go on your merry way and act like everything's okay. You ought to be on your face down here before God begging that He would not only forgive you, but He wouldn't kill you. There's no fear of God today. It's like those that gossip about each other and stuff like that. Surely I don't need to just stand here and try to name every sin I can think of. Surely all you've got to do is to stop and to think about what you see in, in, in our churches today. And I'm like old Leonard Ravenhill, an old preacher of years ago. He said, I'd rather have ten people who want God than ten thousand people that just want to play church. Amen. I think a lot of times, you know, we just start playing church. You know, we sing, we sing all of the old standard hymns, you know, just like they used to, and we, we give our 10% just like we're supposed to, and we carry the King James Version just like we ought to, and on and on and on. But meanwhile, everything else about our spiritual life is coming apart at the seams. Why? Because there is no fear of God. Now, look, you know, we can talk about the fact that those that are sinners, those that are lost, we can talk about the fact that they have no fear of God. I mean, that is evident, and that's the reason they're not saved. There's no fear of God. There's no sense of their sinfulness before God. But I don't want to just talk about them. I want to talk about us. It doesn't do me any good to stand up here and talk about how bad it is out there in the world and how horrible Hollywood is and all of that other stuff. What good does it do for me to talk about that? It doesn't change us any. And I'm telling you, it's time that we realize that we need to make some changes in our life. Knowing that we ought to fear God... Fearing the consequences of not fearing God is well and good. You know, that puts you ahead of some people. At least you know that, according to the Bible, we ought to have a 
reverent fear of God. And, and because of our knowledge of the Bible, we know that if we don't, and we are disrespectful to God and so forth, we know as a result of that, there are severe consequences that come. Now, all of that's well and good. But we need to fear God, not just know we ought to. And you see, where this is where we leave the service so many times. Brother Kenneth or I, we get up and we preach a message and here's the information. This is what the Bible says and this is what you ought to do and so forth. And we leave it there and everybody goes home, but we never get around to the doing of it. And let me tell you, the preacher can woo you by talking about the goodness of God and he can warn you by talking about the wrath of God, but ultimately it is your decision what you're going to do. Nobody else can make it for you. You've got to decide whether or not you are going to be a God-fearing person. But you can't do it by yourself. You'll never become a God-fearing person unless you make that decision. But I'm telling you that mere human will, making resolutions, deciding that you're going to do something is never enough. It takes more than that. You've got to be willing, but listen, you're not able. Ask yourself, how many times have you heard a message, let's say, about the subject of love, and you know you ought to forgive those that have sinned against you, right? You, you know, Brother Kenneth brought a message the other night about, last night in fact, about what the Bible says about women being submissive to their husbands and husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. Everybody heard that and no doubt there's some point in time that you recognize your failure in one of those areas and you determine, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do that. That He's right. That's what the Bible says. And I'm going to forgive that person. I'm going to start loving them more. How long did it last? Probably had the same problem crop up again next week, right? Um, that's, look, that's the way it is with me. I think that's the way it is with all of us because our intentions are good and we resolve in our heart, I'm going to do better. I know that I'm wrong. I, I, I want to make things right, but we just leave it there and nothing ever happens. Psalms 86 and verse 11 helps us here. The psalmist said, Teach me thy way, O Lord. And then he says, Notice, Lord, you teach me. Help me to understand. And he says, I will walk in thy truth. Okay, that's right where we're at this morning, right? We've looked into the Word of God. We see that we ought to fear God, right? And, and hopefully we've resolved in our heart that we want to be a God-fearing person. But, but he doesn't stop there for good reason. He goes on and he says in the very next part of that verse, Unite my heart to fear thy name. And that's why I said mere willpower is never enough, folks. We need the aid of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do what the Word of God commands us to do. 
Now, now you see, the psalmist discovered here what his need was. He discovered that he has been distracted. There is a disconnect somewhere. He has a divided heart regarding the fear of God. And notice, there's a desire for him to change. And as a result of that desire, he prays to the Lord. He says, unite my heart to fear thy name. He wanted things to change. And he knew he couldn't do it himself, that only God can do that. I'm trying to say, folks, what we need is a God-given revival, the, the, the only thing that will literally change and transform us into the kind of people that we ought to be. You know, we can go on, you know, having church. We can go on. We can watch the attendance grow and rejoice in that. I, I may, Look, I don't know. Maybe you're satisfied with that. I'm not. I want to see God do everything God wants to do in this church. I want to see this church as a, as a perfect example, as it were, to every other church in this community. And the only way we can have a revival like that that literally changes us is for God to do it. And that's why he said, Lord, unite my heart to fear thy name. There's a disconnect, and I need to get back in communion, as it were, with you. Let me tell you what the problem is in our churches today. We have too many disabled Christians. I'm not, I'm not talking about those of you that are walking with the cane like Brother John or, or Brother Warren back there in the wheelchair. I'm not talking about that kind of disability. I'm talking about disabled Christians in the sense that we depend on the effort of the flesh and the brilliance of the mind and our natural abilities to do everything without realizing that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Amen. You go back to the book of Acts and you wonder what in the world happened there. To think about that early church and the impact that it made. People were added to the church every day. Well, you know, I get excited whenever we see someone added to the to the church, you know, one time a week. We, we'd gone every week of the year having people baptized till last week, and that's exciting. Thank God for that. And people have been saved, and thank God for that. That early church, they had people saved every day. And you think about what they did in the, in, in the face of the opposition that confronted, and it's absolutely amazing. And it's no secret how all of that happened. Because he said in verse 8 of chapter number 1 that the power of the Spirit was going to come upon them. And it was the Spirit of God that enabled the saints of God to do the work of God. The only way you and I can be a success in life is for us to be filled with the Spirit of God, for Him to be the controlling factor in our life. I was talking about love earlier. We all know we ought to love more. We all know we ought to have more joy. We all know we ought to be at peace and all of those things. How does that happen? 
Uh, I, I said here, here a while back some time ago, if it hadn't been for the grace of God, that I would have killed a certain man back in Kentucky several years ago. I mean, literally. I knew it would ruin the church and ruin my family. It's the only thing. If that had happened before I was saved, I'd have killed that guy for hurting one of my kids. How... How in the world can we control ourselves from those urges? How can we love the unlovely? How can we have joy when everything in the world seems to be falling apart? How, how, how can you have a joyful attitude? How can you be at peace? The fruit of the Spirit. Amen. That's what Paul said. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and, and it ends up with temperance. I, I I beg you, whatever you do, don't just dismiss this and with a wave of your hand and walk out of here today thinking, well, yeah, the preacher's right. I know what he said was true, and and I need to be more of a God-fearing person. I'm trying to get you to see how important, how dangerous it is for you to go out that door and to go your way without any fear of God in your heart. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I've heard people say, I've heard preachers say, well, you, you ought not try to scare them into heaven. You, you know, what are you talking about? I, I mean, you, hell's a scary place. You, you ought to be scared to death if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior. You are one heartbeat, one breath away from a devil's hell. And the only thing in this world that can help you is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save you. That's all. Nothing else. And if you're here today and you're a child of God out of the will of God, one of those disabled Christians, and you are operating according to the flesh instead of the spirit, I want you to know you're in trouble. David was a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. But because of David's sin, his baby died. If God would take David's baby, don't you think God won't take your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents? If that's what it takes to wake you up. God, give us a revival like that. The kind where we don't have to pump it up some way emotionally and tell old sob stories and stuff like that and play on the emotions of people, but where we're just motivated by the fact that the Spirit of God is controlling us and using us. We started a church in Missouri several years ago and... uh, I'll never forget that experience because God, it was just amazing what God did. We didn't have any property. We we finally, after we lost our little rented building, we chopped down trees and we, we met under a brush arbor. Oh, you just pray it didn't rain. And it, but sometimes it did. And it's on a hillside. But the great thing about it is there were people saved there 
every week, every week. And, and, and I mean, we go week after week after week. I'm not talking about people joining the church. I'm talking about people getting saved. I'm talking about those old hillbillies back in there, you know, dairy farmers and people like that hadn't been to church in years. In some way or another, God was just working on their heart and people getting saved. And you wonder, how, how, can, that, how, how can that happen? Because I believe it can still happen again. But I want to tell you how it happened because if we went one week without someone being saved, I didn't have to get up and beg and plead, oh, we, we went last week and nobody got saved. I'll guarantee you the very next week there would be people lining up this altar at the invitation with tears in their eyes praying, oh, dear God, what happened last week? Nobody was saved. And all of a sudden somebody else would get saved. I don't know about you, but I, I, I've just got to believe that since God hadn't changed, God could do the same thing today if we get that serious. But I can't make it happen. Brother Kenneth, he can't make it happen, and neither can you, folks. We just need God. We need God. And the only way we can have the right attitude about God, that is that fear of God in our heart that motivates us to do the will of God the only way is for us to surrender ourselves to God and quit playing games. Let's all stand together. Father, I pray this morning that you'll speak to our hearts and as much as we want to see things happen, as much as we want to see sinners saved, as much as we want to see the church grow, as much as we want to see people healed, as much as we want to see needs met, we realize, Lord, that we're like helpless little babies in a crib, unable to even go about and to do the things that our heart desires. And Lord, we come before you this morning as helpless little children, just begging and pleading for your will to be done in our lives. And forgive us of the times that we sing how great thou art, and yet we treat you like a junk dealer down the road somewhere. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, of those many times that, uh, that we sing Amazing Grace and then turn right around and flaunt our sin in your face. Speak to our hearts today. Change our lives. Don't let us leave here the way we came, regardless of how good we think we are. May we leave here better than we've ever been. But we pray in Jesus' precious name. Now as we 